Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Shaped by the Sea, the podcast where we dive into the minds of ocean-faring folks to learn something new from, from their perspective. Today, I'm joined by Ron Watson, a New England native who has spent more time in and around the Gulf of Maine than anyone else I know. So, Ron, thanks for joining me here today. Uh, you're very welcome, Brian. Yeah, so I figured uh, I know you personally because we do work together at the Seacoast Science Center. You, uh, you're the, the maintenance coordinator over there. And I, I just want you to, you know, you're much more than that. You're a wildlife photographer. You were you, you worked as a professional scuba diver. So I figure, you know, what better way to, sh- to start off the show than to, to give a little intro about yourself? Yeah, as you, as you said, um, I started off very, very early in life, um, uh, mostly with diving. Um, my mother and father bought me a mask and snorkel, and I used to spend hours inside the claw bathtub underwater. <laughs> um, from there, I just continued on. Um, we, I grew up beside a lake in Wilmington, Mass., called Silver Lake. Um, when I was 10, 12 years old, my mother hated to take me to the lake because she could never find me. Um, <laughs> I was just underwater so much. Um, I had a few, we'll say, kind of heroes. Okay. Um, yeah. First of all and foremost was actually my uncle. My uncle was a Navy diver, and he was one of the first Navy divers Um helped to teach UDT. He was in the submarine service and he's the one who actually put me the first time on scuba equipment when I was 12 years old. Wow. That's pretty young. Uh, It was, um, you know, the, the certifying agencies now allow, uh, a junior certification, I believe at 12 years old. Um, but back then, we didn't even have certifying agencies. The first one that I was able to get involved with was what the YMCA. And that wasn't until I was 16. Yeah. Um, And then I also was very, very um, influenced by Jacques Cousteau, uh, as many of us were. Um, But the third one was somebody who was a national geographic photographer yeah. Uh, did a lot of documentaries and so on by the name of Stanton Waterman. Okay. And he actually came to our high school when I was in the eighth grade and put on a presentation. And that was it. From that yeah. point on, I was hooked. Yeah. What did that, did that just spark your, like you, you are very into photography now. Have was that the moment that you kind of also got into photography? No, actually, I, I, I joined a photography club when I was in the fifth grade. Oh, nice. And, you know, off and on, I got, you know, very much into it. Um, but at other times, I really wasn't into it uh, as much. When I started getting into diving in high school, um, I wanted to do more than just dive. Uh, It was so interesting down there. I I wanted to be able to record and show people. So I built my own housing for a Brownie Instamatic camera. The the housing lasted for a total of one and a half dives before before the camera flooded and that was the end of that. <laughs> oh, that's a bummer. I know. It's it, that's that's tough to watch it all just, you know, that well, anytime you're you're bringing electronic equipment into into salt water or any kind of water, it's it's a recipe for a disaster. Yeah, but, it can be. <laughs> yeah. But but so Ron, then I know that you uh you mentioned to me when did you start working for the New England Aquarium because you were you were one of the divers there, right, for their tanks? That's correct. Yeah. Um, I actually started there in 1980, um, January of 1980, but I didn't start as a diver. I actually started in their education department. Oh, nice. And, I didn't know that. Yeah. With the understanding, I mean, I was already a certified diver and they only had one other volunteer diver um, at that time. And I was a volunteer and, and through most of my career at the New England Aquarium, I was a volunteer and part-time staff. 
uh, and that varied throughout the years. So I only worked at the aquarium for two months, not even a two, full two months. And I came in on a Saturday morning one morning and the divers were shorthanded. There was only one staff diver. And at that point they had no one staff divers. You basically six dives during the day and all the feedings. Yeah. They asked me if I'd like to dive with them for the day. I said, yes. And from that <laughs> point on for almost 37 years, um, I was involved with the uh, New England Aquarium dive staff and with penguins and with their marine mammal research. That's, that's awesome. And I mean, I've got to ask you, I've got so many questions because, you know, my, myself, when I was younger going to the aquariums, that's, that's how I really got hooked on marine science and, and just seeing those divers going into those tanks. It was, it looked, it looked like the coolest job in the world, I have to say. So, I mean, can you attest to that? Was it, was it the coolest job like ever being able to just every day that's, you know, something that you do is you swim with these animals and uh, yeah. I, I can certainly attest that it was my happy place. Nice, um, nice. You know, but on the other hand, you got to look at it that it is a job. And there were certainly times when um, it had the same, uh, you know, when you were down there for hours scrubbing the fake coral to get algae off of it. Okay. Yeah. yeah you were floating and you were, um, you know, underwater. But, you know, there were times when it was still a job. Yeah. That's very true. It, it, yeah. it brings you back to, to reality a little bit in a way, but it's still, it, it's an opportunity that not many people can say that they've done, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, you know, when I started in it, it was actually, they were just at the beginning of actually having volunteer divers. Um, there was actually only two of us at the time, myself and uh, a gentleman named Steve Corrin, um, yeah. were the only two, uh, you know, volunteer divers through the years. It's evolved, um, as a volunteer diver back when I started, we really got to do things that the volunteer divers today do not get to do because of the fact of the OSHA requirements yeah. and so yeah. on. That's very so, true. Yeah. But, uh, I mean... And, and that's, that's interesting to me too. Something that you, that you said that I find really cool is that you, you've made your way in the marine science field, pretty much. It's not, you know, you, you worked as a part-time, you know, part-time diver there. You, you volunteered a lot of your time. Um, I find, I find that very interesting because even with the Seacoast Science Center, you, your, your full-time position is you're, you're a, a maintenance coordinator. So you, you kind of take care of the nuts and bolts of, you know, the, uh, just what happens at the center, but you know, you you. It sounds like you made a way for for you to be able to work in all of these organizations. You know, the the Seacoast Science Center, the New England Aquarium, um, and I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit to that because I know a lot of people today. It's working in the field of marine science. It's a it's a high demand field, right? Like it's it's tough to it's tough to get a job. Um, so I'm I'm wondering if you could talk to that a little bit about your your story. Yeah, um, you know, I never, ever expected to be able to go as far as I have in the marine science industry. Um, you know, my background is basically mechanical engineering. And I started with the aquarium as pretty much a hobby. Yeah. Um, something that I, you know, I, I could take my hobby, which of course was diving, and do something that was really, really interesting to me. And that was spending time in the water with all these animals and learning. Um, but what actually made it progress for me was my mechanical engineering background. Yeah. Um, I, I developed, I was able to uh, do things for the aquarium and for the giant ocean tank and also for the penguin tray um, yep. that they had nobody else to do. Uh, I developed underwater vacuum systems for them. Um, I built uh, enclosures, designed enclosures for um, 
segregation of animals. Uh, oh, you that's know, awesome. they, they, yeah. And that is really what allowed me to grow in the positions there. Um, and then of course also work ethic. Yeah. The one thing, the one thing that the aquarium has always, um, I guess, rewarded me for was that even as a volunteer, in my first 18 years of volunteering there before I moved to Florida, I only missed two shifts in 18 years. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's important. Big, yeah. big thing for them to rely. I mean, a volunteer is still an employee and has a specific job to do. Yeah. And, and you were able to reliably do it every day. And, and no, that's, and that's big time. And you do, you, you volunteer for the, the science center too, uh, for a marine mammal rescue team, you know, it, it, and this, it sounds like this work ethic is never, you know, it's a, it's a part of you, right? <laughs> yeah. My wife would, my wife wishes I would slow down. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, oh man, that's, that's funny. And so I want to talk it really like you've, You've spent a lot of time underwater, just even outside of working for the New England Aquarium, too, right? Did did you ever do any other like professional diving jobs while you were um, certified? I did, yeah. Um, I worked a lot for um, a dive shop that was in Burlington, Mass. I was an instructor, so I taught a lot of students, and I taught them up to the um, dive master level. Um. I did some commercial work. I did some underwater work on dams. I did some salvage work. Um, and then when I moved down to Florida, I ended up being, and again, my background is not marine science, yeah. but I learned so much about it that I was actually brought on as the chief scientific diver for the Charlotte Marine Research Team. That's and awesome. What that entailed was actually um, finding areas to put artificial reefs off of the coast of Charlotte County in Florida, which is um, on the on the West Coast. And it's down about central Florida, down in the Fort Myers to Venice area. Yep. Um, and then once we found those areas to place the reefs, we then also um, helped to actually place them uh, by doing the coordinates, working with the people who were uh, putting down the reefs themselves. And then we monitored those, monitored those reefs um, for their growth, for their efficiency and, and whatever. Yeah, that and, and that's super important work. And usually, you know, usually you think of, you know, that you need you need a uh, some kind of master's degree in coral ecology or, or you know, coral reef studies to to like get a kind of position like that. But I think it's so cool that you were able to just with from your knowledge, your knowledge of scuba diving and your persist, you know, your your persistence in this field that you were able to get these, you know, really cool, really awesome and, you know, jobs that are in the field of marine science and be able to participate in that firsthand. So I think that that's super cool. Um, and, and Ron, I want to, I have another question here that I want to bring up because I, there's a lot that I want to cover with you, but, um, one, one of my favorite things that you've, you've put out, uh, in the past year, and this has been running for over a year now. Um, so you are an avid wildlife photographer up here in new England. Uh, you know, you, you, a lot of your stuff is what you, you would say mostly New Hampshire and Massachusetts, right? Correct. Massachusetts. Well, yeah. Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah. And, and so you, you started this, um, it's on Facebook, this, uh, smile a day pics, right. That you've, that you've been, po that you've been posting since really since COVID happened. Um, I want I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you created this. It's, and it's awesome. I, I love watching it every day and you've, You've developed like this huge following kind of, uh, you know, uh, from these from these wildlife photos that you post on Facebook. So I, I was hoping you could you could talk a little bit about that. OK, um, <laughs> I, I really haven't I really haven't told people about why I started it so much. And it, it can be kind of a little bit emotional for me. 
Okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. Um, prior to me doing this and prior to COVID, um, I was posting, again, the same things, not, not as frequently. Yep. And a Facebook, there were two Facebook friends. Now, I've never met either one of these, but it was a mother and daughter. Yeah. And they were just constantly, they would, I mean, on days that I didn't post, they would ask if I was going to post. They wanted to see my pictures. And then just before COVID hit, I found out the mother had cancer. Oh, man. It, yeah. it, it progressed very quickly. And the daughter, okay, yep. um, got a hold of me one day and said, Ron, she said, could you post a picture of seals? Yeah. She said, my mother loves seals. Yeah. So I, I posted the picture. Later that day, she contacted me and said her mother had passed, passed oh, away. Man. Oh, that's 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 horrible. But but that she was passed. She passed away looking at my picture. Oh man! Well, and yeah, it didn't. My my smile a day pics didn't start actually right at the beginning of COVID. They started on March thirtieth last year. I've got gotcha. you. And you can see that picture on Badger's Rocks and Merrimack River. Okay. Yeah. But her daughter told me that I made her mother smile every day. Oh. Oh. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah, what, what were you going to say? Well, and that's how it started. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, I'm, I'm sorry. That's, that's such a sad story. But, like, that... I mean, it it's a testament to like how much one picture can really make someone's day, you know, and, and how I don't know, like how I guess I guess which they they were outdoor enthusiasts as well, correct? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. The daughter frequently is down at Badger's Badger's Rocks taking pictures of the seals. I got you. And you, and you say yeah. do you stay in touch with her still? I do. Yes. Nice, nice. I know, and. And that's, it's wild though. Like the, at, even as like, I've become involved with wildlife photography, it's, it's a tight knit community, right? It and, is. Yeah. And I think no, no one can really attest for that as much as you can. I mean, you've like with these smile a day pics that you've been posting, like it, people comment on them like every single day. Like it's, it's a way for people to find common grounds with other people. And, you know, every politics and everything else aside like it's it's just enjoy this enjoy the the natural gifts that we have here in massachusetts and new hampshire and and in these awesome places that we can get to visit um and yeah i i didn't know that that was the story behind it i i personally thought that you did it because of covid it continued because of covid i gotcha i got okay um i one of my one of my first posts um, was basically labeled a non-political post. And it was of the marsh across from Odeon Point with all the posts sticking up out of the marsh. Yeah. Um, at, at sunset. And it was a gorgeous picture. And you know what? Um, that's That brought a lot of people to my Smile of Day picks. Yeah. Because they can all relate. It's something that everyone can relate to in this community. And yeah. And I think too, I mean, like I, now, now that I know the reason that you started it, I mean, uh, I think, I think so many people are drawn to it too, is because it, it is a, a light, a positive ray of light in a, in a really just crappy year for most people, you know? And, and it's just, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think it's incredible. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. 
find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. I'm, I'm shocked that you have so many pictures of wildlife to just, you know, at, at your at your disposal to post. But um, yeah, I mean, you you post pictures of snowy owls, you get the hawks, you get everything, um, even, you know, to this to the smallest birds, the sparrows and some of the, the ducks and the geese that we have around here, you know, and I think it's incredible that you're able to find find this beauty in every different kind of species that comes across our coastline like you you don't discriminate right like you you post pictures of pretty much every species you can you come across right if i can find it i'm going to post a picture of it um and what i you know i mean the, the the pictures that i post now for the most part almost every one of those pictures have been taken within the last three years because prior to that i virtually did no above water wildlife photography everything i did was underwater oh really yes yeah okay so you wow i I didn't know that either because you you what i what i know of you right now is is that is your you're basically birding photography right like that's i would say that's mostly what you do now right it is yes it is yeah interesting i I didn't know that you made that what what made you want to make that transition three years ago (laughs) I guess it was mostly monetary. <laughs> I gotcha. Um, and the reason why is because I was for a long time, I was a, a holdout. Um, I did not want to change over to digital photography. I wanted to stay with film photography. And a, a part of that was because, of course, that's what I grew up with. But also because of the fact that changing over to digital photography also meant that I had to change over all my underwater housings. Yeah, that's very to, true. Yeah. And that's a that's a major outlay. And I didn't really feel I wanted to do that until finally something came along, a rel- relatively inexpensive um, underwater system, a yep. digital system. And that's when I changed over to digital. And I yeah. changed over to digital first underwater and then said, you know what? This is great. I can take 200 pitches instead of 24 or 36. <laughs> yeah, it is the nice thing. The SIM yeah. cards hold plenty more pictures. They yeah. sure do. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, for me too, that is a barrier to that. The only reason I haven't, you know, t- done underwater photography uh, over the summer is because I can't afford uh, underwater housing. You know, it's just those things, they, they run thousands of dollars. Like it's almost ex- as expensive as a camera itself, right? Yeah, it, it can be. Um, you know, the good thing is, is that there are now a couple of manufacturers who make basically a point and shoot system um, that you can get out of it for under a thousand dollars and have a system that's shooting at 16 megapixel. And some of them are shooting at 4K video. Yeah, that's true. That's that's pretty that's pretty wild. I know the the technology is definitely getting there. So um, I know I'm hoping to get my hands on something that's a little cheaper sometime soon. But um, but so I do I do sticking to this photography topic because um, I I think that there's a lot that I really want to pick your brain with with this. But I'm curious how how have you seen through your years of, of you know li- living in Massachusetts and, and New England. How how have you seen the the photography community and and just like the outdoor community here change um, on this on the seacoast? I'm just curious. Like, has has there beca- has the seacoast become more developed? Have more people you know been visiting these natural places like Plum Island and Crane Beach and and uh, and you know Odierne po- Point? Um, you know, I've only been here for the the past five years in New England, so I I don't I don't know what it used to look like. So. I'm curious if you could give a little insight into, you know, the, the past of, of living in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Well, there's no doubt um, there has been a major, major change. Um, the first change that 
I can say is that there are a lot more people performing the different sports that are involved around the coast. Um, I mean, we can start off with something that you do, okay, with surfing. Yeah. yeah. On a really good day when I was growing up in the 60s and early 70s, I mean, I I knew every single person basically who was at the Hampton Wall. Yeah. Um, and there may be 20 people who were there. <laughs> I wish it was 20 people today. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> there's there's hundred, you put you pull up, you can barely find a parking spot in the summer. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and that was not a problem when you know when. I was growing up in, in, like I said, the 60s, the late 60s and 70s. And, the and surfing you- has changed. There was very, very few of us um, who did winter surfing. That's another thing. Yeah. Okay? Well, the wetsuits I mean, weren't there, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, the way, <laughs> excuse me, the wetsuits were so stiff that you had a hard time lifting them up and over your head. (laughs) (laughs) Let let alone paddling for a wave in, in, you know, 15 degrees out, you know, the water's 30 degrees. Oh my God. I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you told me uh, once this, this hilarious story. So back in the day, how, how did you get the surf report? (laughs) Well, of course, back in the day, we didn't have cell phones. Yeah. And where I lived out in Wilmington, Massachusetts, the call to Hampton was long distance and it costs money. <laughs> so what we actually did was the surf shop, which is now Cinnamon Rainbow, um, had a system designed that you would call in and there was what was called person to person collect. Yeah. In other words, you called and asked for a specific person. If that person was there, then you could talk to them and you could charge for the call. If that person wasn't there, then you just hung up. Yep. So Simon Ray Rainbow had three different names. Now, <laughs> I used Corky Carroll. Corky okay. Carroll was, uh, you know, he was one of the founders of the East Coast Surfing Association. Um, I believe he was the editor for Surfers Magazine. Yep. I would call up and ask, is Corky there? And the person on the other end would say, no, but he'll be back between two to three. Well, that <laughs> meant it was two to three foot seas. <laughs> That's... If they said he's not going to be here today, there was no waves. <laughs> that's in, that's ingenious so did did everyone know that or was that just you had you had to be you know in the crowd to to kind of know or was yeah it, it was more in the crowd not everybody knew it um you know there was there was a couple of surfing clubs i belonged to the seafood seabrook surfing association and you know there was a Hampton Surf Club, and those are the people who really, you know, they work with more. Yeah, who were, who were serious about it and kind of laid the foundations for what we see today, right? Es- essentially, and I mean, today for those of you who are listening, the I mean, surfing. I won't say too much about it because I don't want to blow up any any spots or anything like that. But um, you know, it's there's a lot more people surfing up north than there. I'd say that there ever was. Um, you know, and I've seen this, I've seen this throughout just like anywhere, anywhere outside of like California, right? Like New York, New Jersey, the surf, the surf scene is exploding right now. A lot, a lot of people are trying to get outdoors because more people can, I guess now than, or, or they, they see it, they see it on social media and they're inspired to go do it. Right. And, um, so I, I can see that the, the crowds are starting. I, I've seen the crowds grow in New York and New Jersey just because that's where I, I grew up surfing. And I saw that happen within, you know, five years, just the amount of people exploded. Um, but you do see with the wetsuit technologies and, and, you know, and social media and Instagram and all that, it's, it's becoming popular up here. Like, it's almost like there's nowhere cold enough. Uh, like the, the cold doesn't really keep people from doing it anymore. Right. <laughs> 
that's correct. I mean, it, it still amazes me. I mean, I used to go out and surf during the wintertime, but I wasn't out there at sunrise like I see all these people out there now on um, – you know, eight degree mornings. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that was that was like two weeks ago. It was, yes, uh, sure it was, was. I was out there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we we have the booties and the like. You can you can surf for at least two hours if you have the right equipment in the dead of winter out here. And and it, it is true, the crowds are still pretty thinned out from it. Uh, if it, it, the the crowds are thinner if you surf in the in the winter than you do in the summer, but the amount of people who are willing to you know put put it put in the pain to to go out and paddle out and catch them in the winter is uh is definitely rising pretty steadily but um would you say would you say as well other than surfing wh- when it comes to like wildlife photography and and things like birding in general like do you do you see more people um, or even like younger people getting into this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, first of all, when it comes to photography, um, the advent of the digital photography certainly made a big difference. Yeah. Um, you know, with with film photography, there was a lot more to learn. Okay. And it was a lot harder to take good pictures. Digital photography, you can throw a camera, and I don't care whether that camera costs you $89 or it costs you $5,000. You can put it into automatic and you can get some pretty good pictures. Yeah, it's very Um, true. Yeah. So that has made a major, major difference in the photography portion of it. That being said, um, COVID has just skyrocketed um the people who want to be outdoors and whether or not that's uh birding uh and the use of spotoscopes and binoculars or whether it's the use of cameras um a lot of the camera companies uh, had a hard time keeping up with camera sales this year as did Almost all the recreational, the outdoor recreational market, they had a difficult time keeping up with sales because of COVID. Yeah, that that's true. I I couldn't. I was trying to buy a kayak for like all summer last year, and I, I couldn't find anything anything new in any stores. Um, I, I had to I had to resort to looking on online for used kayaks, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Um, and so, I mean, I think that continues across the boards when it comes to anything to do with the ocean. Um, as you said, the kayaking, um, you know, I mean, kayaking has become, uh, you know, a major outdoor sport, um, paddle boarding. Um, the other one that I grew up with, of course, is scuba diving. Um, the scuba diving community it's kind of sad in a way the scuba diving community has grown incrementally. I mean, it just, it's much, much bigger than what it was when I was growing up. But on the other hand, the scuba diving industry, the small shop um, that has gone away in many cases, we've, we've really lost a lot of the small shops. Um, which is partially due to online sales. Um, gotcha. But, you know, overall, the amount of divers has has grown a lot. And a lot of that has got to do with the fact that um, the equipment itself is so much better, so much easier to work with. Um, yeah. And so on. Yeah. It's a little maybe it's a little bit more accessible, accessible for people in a way. Um but yeah, I know. I mean, I mean, for me personally, I, I only just started scuba diving two years. Uh, I think it was two years ago at this point. Um, so I had gone my whole life like surfing was the thing that drew me to the ocean and fishing and get it like I was I snorkeled any time that I could. But um, for me, scuba diving was it, it was just like a little bit of expensive for me to do. And and I. I ha- I still actually haven't scuba dived up in uh, New England yet, so I'm gonna have to. We're, you and I are gonna have to talk after this, Ron. We gotta set something up. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> but but I mean, 
is that is that something that you ever saw with with scuba diving was like that it was just it was just tough to get for people to get into it unless you were like really passionate about it yeah there's no doubt i mean as an instructor okay you saw that pretty frequently um yeah it took to go out and purchase i mean when i first started instructing um it, it would still cost you approximately a thousand dollars to get a minimal setup for scuba diving. Yeah. Um, and that was a lot of money. It really was. It was a lot of money. It, it's still a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it certainly is. The difference now, I mean, when I first started, there was very little in the way. I mean, the shops had minimal rental equipment. Um, now, uh, the shocks up north up here, all, you know, they all have rental equipment. Um, yeah. You can get into it and really make the decision as to whether or not it's something you really want to do. And you, that's something you, <clears throat> excuse me, that's something you can't do with scuba diving until you're trained. Yeah. Um, you know, you can go out and you can use somebody's surfboard and decide, I don't want to buy, I don't want to do this. Okay. It's not what I want. But unless you go through the training courses with scuba, you can't do that. You can't make that decision until you've actually gone through some of the training. Yeah. Because um, it's so, it's such a dangerous activity. You know, you're put it, you are, you know, even, even up to the intro courses up to 30 feet, you know, um, there's you have to know what you're doing to jump into it. You can't just grab, you know, grab a, 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 you know, a set of scuba gear and, and throw it on and know what to do. Right. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it it can be very dangerous. And, you know, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I have um, I have basically worked a few times in um, recovery. OK, gotcha. We're, we went out and, you know, had to go after people who were not certified, okay, yeah. um, and paid the price for it. Yeah, that's, I know, it's it, you can, it's a it's a dangerous game that you can't, you know, you can't really, you can't mess with the ocean when it comes to that stuff. That's correct. I mean, you know, it's something that with the correct training, then it's a lifetime sport, okay, that you can enjoy but you have to do it safely. And there's only one way to do it safely. And that's to get trained correctly. Exactly. Exactly. But to, so kind of, I want to circle back around here just to, um, to talking about like how a lot more people have been, you know, participating in these outdoor activities. Um, and you, you are out there basically every day shooting wildlife, right? Like any, any chance you get. Um, so I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about, um, I know, uh, there's there's really like a lot of talk about the conservation ethic that wildlife photographers should be having out there, right? Like not giving give making sure that you respect the space of any animals that you're photograph uh, you know photographing, um, no matter if they're birds, ma marine mammals, like whatever it is, trying not to disturb disturb the animals, leaving no trace when you're out there, not you know climbing over sensitive habitat to get a better shot. Um, and I'm curious if you've seen. If you think that like people have been getting better with that kind of stuff as, as people become more aware of like, uh, you know, these, these guidelines online, like they see, you know, they see people posting about it. They see signs up. Um, do you think people are getting better with it? Or do you think that because there's so many more people spending time outside that it's becoming more of a problem? I, I think, I think the people who have been involved in it for a long period of time, are getting better at it. But I do think that, um, again, especially during this COVID period, and there's been so many people who have uh, just entered into it that they really don't know in many cases. They don't know what the, the guidelines are. They don't know what, you know, they don't, they don't understand that if a, uh, a snowy owl during the daytime has its eyes wide open staring at you, you're too close. Yeah. Okay? Um, because it makes a dramatic picture to have those big bright eyes staring at you. 
Um, and we see that the same thing. I mean, both you and I are you know, involved with marine mammals. Yep, and exactly. We see that same thing. Okay, that people want to get up close. People want to, uh, whether it be for the picture or because with the marine mammals, the seals, they're so cute. Um, I, I think we also have our perception of wild animals has also changed. We think of wild animals more and more as human beings in some ways with human emotions. Yep. And that's not a good thing. Yeah. There's a, a lot of people personify these animals and, and they, yeah, it's, it's like people want to connect with these animals because they see themselves in them in a way, right? Like, especially with the marine mammals, so many people think that they, that they're like their dogs, right? Or that you know, that's the biggest thing that I see. But um, even I know, I know, and, and it drives people to get close to them. And it's, it's, you know, from what whenever I see it happen, I try and educate the people that are doing it, you know, and like calmly and, and without, you know, making it making a big deal out of it. But, you know, letting them know that, like, that they are harming these animals. And I think that that's what really gets to them is, you know, it, it's it's not about telling someone that they can't do something just because it's wrong. It's like I, I see people do change their ways when they really do like under when you sit down and tell them like exactly how this is going to harm the animal. Right. Because no one no one wants to be a, the bad guy. But like I, but at the same time, I don't know, I, I do see people like I've I don't know if you've ever witnessed this, but like someone almost intentionally like trying to flush a bird out so they get uh, the shot of it flying. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I have a very specific incident last year. Um, I had been monitoring a great horned owls um, family for basically from right about this, this time, right through into the summer when the owlets were branching and fledging. Yeah. And I mean, I'm certainly not going to mention any names or anything like that, but I saw this person have a dog with them and the dog was not on a leash. There were two owlets who were up in a branch that was only 25 feet off the ground and she would throw a ball under the owlet so the dog would chase it. Okay. And at that point... I mean, those owlets, as far as they're concerned, that's a predator. Oh, 100 percent. And so and then she'd stand there and snap pictures of their reactions. Um, I I actually had to inform her that I had videoed her doing that and that I was also going to wait out in the parking lot for her to get to her car. And then I was going to video the car and turn it into the wildlife. Now, at that point, she decided, well, maybe this isn't a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, and I know sometimes the sometimes people only change when you know they they understand that they're gonna get in trouble for it, you know. And I mean the the one thing that's interesting to me too about this kind of stuff is that you know in today's day and age where everyone everyone has a camera on them now in, in the in the form of your phone, right? And you know a lot of these things do become documented, but I mean have you have you ever seen someone actually get fined for? doing something like that? I can't say that I've ever seen anybody fined. I have seen people escorted, okay, by yeah. law enforcement um, away from an area and be given a very, very stern talking to. Um, yeah. But I, I can honestly say I don't know what they've ever been fined for it. Gotcha. Because that's, that's something that I'm curious about myself because – I feel as though, you know, there, there are laws in place to protect these animals, right? Like they, it's it's very clear in some cases, like especially with the snowy owls or when it comes to marine mammals, there are specific distance guidelines that you have to respect. And and it's and, you know, in some cases, it's a fe- it's a, a federal law. And yet I do feel as though most of the time and and I think 
I, I, this must be the strategy by the law enforcement. But for the most for the most part, I, I don't see any real strict fines being you know put down. It's mostly like if if they ever do have to respond to something, it's just been um, you know that they educate the person. They give them they they really do give them a stern talking to. But um, and they and they pretty much note that like we we know your we know who you are. If we see you do this again, then you know something something more serious will be done like more serious action will be taken but but yeah I, I do that's just something that i've noticed as well but um i mean yeah and and the snowy owls are a perfect example though where we where we are here in new england in, in that it's it's like this iconic animal that you you ask any anyone who's birding they're they're looking for snowies right like for the for the most part you you know, you, you're down at Plum Island or, or Crane Beach and you know, yeah, you ask people what they're what they've seen, what they're looking for. And, you know, mo- most people are out there looking for snowies. And um, I, I've you know, you, you do get some pretty serious crowds out there. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, um, you know, I mean, this year uh, earlier in the season, um, I, I did go down to take a look at a snowy owl that was all the way down the end of Plum Island. And when I got there and saw the amount of people, I just turned around and, and left. At that point in time, there had to be 300 people down there. Um, and 300? Had, yeah, 300. Um, and they had pretty much surrounded the snowy owl. Now, that being said, for the most part, they were not extremely close to the snowy, but still they had surrounded it and at no point could this snowy owl rest and so on. Yeah. Yeah. At, at some point it just becomes too much of a volume of people. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's where it just, I, I think this is what's kind of a key is that, you know, at, at on one end of the spectrum, right. It's awesome to see that so many more, like so many new people, so many more people are coming out and enjoying the outdoors. Right. Like it, that's, in, in my opinion, that's one of the only like learning by by example and by experience. It that's the kind of stuff that stuff that sticks with you forever, and it has the potential to turn you into a, a lifelong wildlife advocate, right? And and but on the on the other end though, like to having you know we we are only going to see more and more people become you know interested in this kind of stuff and spending time outdoors and and hiking, surfing, fishing, you know, photographing wildlife. Um, and at, at some point, you know, it, it becomes almost like too many people. So it's like, I feel like that's the the stage that we're in almost is like trying to find that balance between like, but between showing, showing more people what the, you know, the awesome things that are out there in the outdoors and like maintaining this respect for the wildlife and, and not impacting them because I mean, humans, humans innately we are not you know, compatible with like these wild animals right like too too many people innately is going to harm whatever whatever natural space is out there but i i was curious what i mean what do you think is kind of the way forward with that i i think this is this is a very difficult one um and honestly in some of the birding groups on facebook and so on um There's a lot of dialogue that takes place. I also uh, myself have many times uh, talked back and forth in private conversations. One of the things like, you know, like anything else, education, first of all, uh, is paramount to making changes. But in some cases also, um, stricter enforcement has to take place. Uh, and the enforcement has to include, um, you know, uh, penalties, uh, not just a slap on the wrist and a talking to. Um, and I think that's one of the only ways that we'll get this across to the small fraction of people out there who don't really care they're there just for the best picture they're not there they don't they don't honestly care about the wildlife they're there for the wow factor yeah that's very true and and some of these animals they they are they have that wow factor they're 
they're what people want to photograph, right? And and it 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 comes down like those are the kind of people who I've witnessed firsthand where they try, you know, they they know what they're doing is wrong, but they do it anyway. You know, you can you can clearly you can tell them all that you want. You could talk their ear off about it. You can educate them as much as you want, but they really just want to get that photo. And um, I, I agree. Those the it it's a small group of people, but um, yeah, those those are the ones that definitely changing their ways is is what would happen. You know, what what would have a big impact. But that's I it, that that topic was something I really wanted to cover with you because you you're out there more than anyone else I know. So. <laughs> I figured I figured you'd have a good re- a good report on kind of the status of it at least here in New England and I'm sure I'm sure pla- places elsewhere have been kind of feeling the same pressure of you know uh, of more people visiting their natural places and and things like this happening for vulnerable wildlife but so I do uh, there's one more question I have for you Ron that I want to kind of end with um and so like we like we talked about earlier, you know, you took a really unique path uh, in your career in, in marine science and scuba diving and, you know, be, being a wildlife photographer. Um, and I'm curious, like, what advice would you give to a student today who wanted to, like, follow in your footsteps, right? Yeah, um, I, I guess I've thought about that a lot. There, there's realistically the path that i took is is not an easy path to follow and to be able to end up in the positions that i ended up being in in many cases i probably would have uh things may have been easier for me if i had a little more of the marine um ecology, the marine biology um, background, but it's not impossible by any means to do it the way that I did. Yeah. What's more important is to, if, if you have a dream, work towards that dream in whatever way that you can possibly do it. Yeah. Be, become affiliated with some type of an agency that will help you work towards that, the fulfillment of that dream. Um, that's that's some good advice. It, it, that's I mean that's how it worked for me. I mean I didn't have that dream when I started. I wanted to be involved, but I didn't have the dream of having a lifetime of being involved in ocean conservation, animal conservation. Yeah. And, you know, it has put me into some really neat positions um, doing manatee research uh, down in Florida. OK, I, I never would have been in that position if it hadn't been for the New England Aquarium and meeting the person who would later give me the job of working with manatees as she was. So networking certainly is, is one of the things that's critical. Um, Volunteering, volunteering is in my mind, that's the way, first of all, to get in the door. Secondly, to really see whether or not you're going to actually, after a year or two, is this really what you want to do? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And yeah, and, and I think another, another really good point with volunteering too, is I, I knew you were going to mention volunteering. Um, I, I think a huge thing is that it doesn't matter like what age you are, you can volunteer for an organization very easily and and have an impact there. Like you don't have to be, uh, you know, an undergraduate student at, at college to, to volunteer somewhere and make it matter. Like I, I volunteer for surf rider foundation here too, right? Like you, you volunteer for Marine mammal rescue right now. Um, you can like, you can do this, you can volunteer throughout your entire life and it's only going to make things better for you. Like it, 
it it opens those doors, those connections, and and you know it, if you want to work in a space like and and you really like that's your dream, you know the opportunity might not be there for something paid right away, but you know keep on just volunteering and keep on keeping at it. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, when I take a look back through the years at the New England Aquarium, almost every person who is a staff member at the aquarium started as either a volunteer or an intern um, and has progressed up to the point where, you know, I, I, I mean, I know of at least two people who are now head aquarists, okay, who started as volunteers. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it really is. It's a great way of getting your foot in the door. And, but more than that, it's a great way of finding out whether or not this is really what you want to do in life. Yeah. And that's what matters because, you know, uh, that it's a tough, it's a tough field to work in and you really, you have to know that you want to do this, right? Otherwise, otherwise you're just wasting your time pretty much. That's correct. I mean, the first thing you have to realize is that um, it, it's 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 tough to get into this. There's a lot of people who want to get into it, so the competition is is pretty heavy. Um, yeah. You also have to realize that unless you go to work for certain um, for-profit companies, that you're not going to make an awful lot of money because the majority of the the companies that do this are nonprofits. Um, yep, exactly. You know, so yeah, I mean, you could go to work for Johnson and Johnson. Okay. And they take almost every marine biology major who comes out of the university of Florida. Um, really? and, and eventually you can make a pretty good living if you want to work for them in a private, as a private entity you're doing research, you're, you know, you're, you're basically trying to find out why sharks don't get cancer. And, and that may be the direction you want to go. But if you really want to work with animals, then in many cases, it's a nonprofit. Okay. And again, the competition to get in there is fierce. So you've got to stand out. You've got to be somebody who, first of all, has a lot of drive. Um, has a lot of passion. And I can honestly say I have worked with some of the most passionate, um, the most passionate young people, I think, in the world. I know of people who have gone, I mean, the person who got me my job uh, down in Florida doing marine mammal research is now a doctor and she runs the Manatee, uh, they call it the Serenia Foundation in Africa, um, and just oh, last, awesome. yeah, and just last year, her and her husband became National Geographic fellows for the work that they do. That's yeah, that's about as that's about as high as you can get, pretty much, right? Yep. But I, I think that's that's a really that's a good note to end on. I think, Ron, like just it. it just to answer that question, like how, what advice would you give someone? I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's just, you, you've got to be passionate in this field. You've got to work hard towards it. And you know, you, you are an example of that, right? Like with the things that you've, you've been able to accomplish and where you've, where, you know, what you've done in your career. So, I mean, if you work hard enough and stick to it, you know, you can, you can make your way in this field and you can make a difference, difference for our planet. Right. And, uh, Ron, uh, you know, we're, I, we're running out of time here, so I do want to just give you a chance. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to mention um, before we close up this this episode? <laughs> no, not not really. I mean, I'm you know I'm 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 going to be seventy in just a little over a week, and I'm hoping to stay doing this for many many more years to come and that's it (laughs) we we all hope you're gonna stay doing this for years to come and i i i know you will and uh happy big 7-0 there ron well almost almost (laughs) thanks brian (laughs) thanks again ron for joining us for this podcast um it was a pleasure having you yeah thank you for having me